Our sermon text is from John 6, 59 to chapter 7, 12 this morning. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, all these many years um, being in church, I've always wanted somebody, at some point, some pastor, some preacher, to preach on those last few verses. And what I mean is, Jesus told a lie. Did you guys catch it? Did anybody else catch it? Doesn't it sound like Jesus is lying at the end of this, in this chapter, in this story? Anybody? Any takers on this? I don't think he is. But this is a little teaser for next week. Well, I'm going to look at that next week. So that was your teaser. That was, that was to make you come back so you can find out. <laughs> I've always wondered about that. And I think there's a very good answer to it. All right. So uh, 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 good morning. And I'm excited to bring God's word to you this morning. I just am. And I'm excited for a number of reasons. Maybe it's just the joy. Of, I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to think about it. But uh, we just heard the text. And one of the things I want to do today is, uh, well, I, I, we're kind of in media rest. And what I mean is it's like it's like in the midst of things. I just threw you in the deep end is what I mean. Look at verse 59. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And there's 30 or 40 or 50 verses of dialogue and preaching right before that. And many of you, most of you, all of you will not remember what it was about. <laughs> so, uh, the, but 59 introduces a crisis. Christ is in crisis. He is in crisis and conflict with the people around him, with the people who follow him. With his own family, we even see it. He is in crisis with the leadership, the religious leadership of his time. 
And so we're kind of diving in here. And, and so I want to give us just a little bit of context, just a little bit of context. And the context is here. It's right here in John 6, just before our text. And the reason I'm bringing this up is to remind you of what we looked at last week and even reinforce it. Because Christ has said things. He's presenting himself. He's, he's, he's describing faith in a way that's very violent and ugly and gross. It's grotesque. Cannibalism, the drinking of blood and the eating of meat, of human meat, it's disgusting. And so, in fact, it gets even more disgusting than you think. <laughs> this Lord right here feasts right here. This is wonderful. In, in, uh, Christ didn't speak Greek. So I, who knows what Aramaic uh, word uh, lurks behind this expression. But that word feast is only used for animals. It's trogon, and it means to chow down. <laughs> it means to gobble. It means to stuff your face. And I love that. And I guess I wanted to capture that as we're kind of coming off of Christ's controversial teaching, and he is upsetting everybody around him. Maybe he'll upset you a little today. I hope so. If you're listening, you should get a little upset. But Christ is being controversial intentionally, it seems, and he even accentuates the controversy with his language. Like the language itself is grotesque. It's ugly. Why? And we looked at that last, why? Why is he doing this? And, and, and there, he has his reasons, he separates people, it does a bunch of things. But what we looked at last week was, was this in particular. I was eager, every week we celebrate this table right here, communion, bread and wine, flesh and blood. And we signify, we symbolically act out what Christ is talking about, but not just symbolically, we looked at last week. It's not just a symbol, is it? What's actually here when we come by faith? What is here in this table when we come with faith? The real presence and grace of the eternal God. That is the doctrine of the real presence, the mysticism. And I, look, mysticism is wonderful. The idea that there's things we don't know and things in God that we can partake of and know that, that are mysterious, that are beyond our reckoning, beyond our, even our, it invites us into imaginative wonder, right? What is this God? And, we, and what, what do we come up with? Uh, the description of the church is we are the God eaters. We're weird. And, I, and I'm thinking we as the God eaters, we need to double down on this kind of language because that's weird. But in its weirdness accentuates and opens up the gospel to us. But there's another reason Christ uses this language of eating and devouring, chowing down and gobbling. It's also this, to teach you what the cross is. What is the cross? The cross is the substitutionary atonement for your sin. Where Christ takes your place. He is the replacement complete and to the, to, the, to the very uttermost of who you are, replaces you. And you, uh, for example, uh, where he bleeds, uh, David should have been bleeding. Where he dies, Rena should have been dying. Where he goes into the tomb, I should have been in the tomb. We, each one of us, should have paid a debt for our crimes, our sins, and our unbelief. This is teaching us that his flesh and his blood is a propitiation, an expiation. Those are big shun words. What they mean is he's a replacement, a substitute for you. When you come by faith, Christ in your stead is on the cross. And he's teaching us about that substitution in this kind of grotesque language. So by faith, 
that we come and we enter into that substitution, and so there is no more judgment for us. In fact, I could just preach on that the whole time, but I want to go where the text goes. I want to obey the scripture, and what we're going to do is we're trying to open up the scripture and help us understand how we can move more close to knowing how to eat that. Because <laughs> look at that word unless. Look at that word unless right there in, that, in the opening proposition. Unless. Do you hear the contingency? Unless. Do you hear how severe? Do you hear how Christ presents an ultimatum, as it were? What's the unless in pie? It's this or you go hungry. It's this or there's no substitution. It's this or there's no mystic union with God. And those, that contingency demands that I as a pastor, as a preacher, preaching this word, announce that to you and then call you to put your faith in Jesus. Well, first thing I want to look at then is Peter's answer to Christ. I, you know, sometimes uh, in, in, this, in this byplay here, in, in the byplay of the conversation, a lot of people think this was made up. It wasn't. This is a report from people there. Don't believe those liars. This is actually a, a report. And this conversation probably stuck out because it is a little bit dramatic, isn't it? People are leaving en masse. People are deserting. That means a bunch of things has a bunch of implications for how much money the apostles have, how the disciples had together, where they can eat, whether Christ is with his whole ministry and everything. It's, people are deserting, right? And so, um, and then this wonderful tenderness, uh, he, he looks at his friends, he calls them friends, and he asks them, very rarely does Christ ask questions like this. It happens occasionally. Just every once in a while. Do you want to go too? at a purely human level, which I think we should read this as, we should hear the heartbreak. <laughs> are you going to go? Are you going to? You know, we know that Christ, Christ has this amazing prescience because he is the son of God. But we also know that he doesn't necessarily know everything. He, some of that is withhold, held from him. So his, his experience can be like yours. It's one of the ways he's human. He doesn't know when the father's going to return. Things like that. And so, uh, but my point here is, Peter's answer is so wonderful. I think it leads us into understanding our spiritual life. Simon Peter answered him, and I want to break it down. It's really sweet. Lord, to whom shall we go? Our spiritual life is a journey right out the, right out the gate. A part of that journey is what? The search. The search for meaning. You know, the search, the click search. The opening the fridge search for something that's going to make you feel better. The search, you know, the search for, you know, and the different, the religious search. However you want to describe how you and I forage in our lives for things that make us feel better and make us feel whole and make us feel complete, we are searching. We are searchers. We can't help it. We are always looking. Look at this. If one thing describes uh, San Francisco in this generation is a search. And did you, did you hear the futility? Because I hear it. I've been searching, Jesus. And I realized something. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> this is something you will discover if Jesus is in you. you you'll discover this as the Holy Spirit begins to, begins to work his, his wonders in your heart. And you'll, under, you'll begin to understand that there's futility everywhere else. And in fact, if God is very kind to you, you will find dust in your work. You'll find dust in romance. You will find dust everywhere except for him. And it's part of his kindness and his work. And it's part of the search. 
is learning that everything else is empty. But then our spiritual life is a journey. As we discover these things, we discover them our whole lives. We'll find that this pattern, by the way, of search, discovery, belief, and knowledge, it repeats itself, too, in our lives and cycles. But he says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life, discovery. Christ has words that make sense of life in the universe. And they do. I, <laughs> I, uh, I remember... Uh, uh, one of the jo- most joyous moments of my life was when eight men came to Christ in Atlanta one time. It was weird. And they were all fraternity brothers and they were all idiots. And they all became Christians and, they, and so they became elders in the church, deacons, evangelists. It was amazing. These were Southern frat boys. And, but I remember one of the guys who didn't come to faith, we became very close and we became climbing partners. He said, Chris, I don't believe anything you say. I'm sorry. But I'll tell you one thing. I don't even like reading the Bible because every time I read it, I know it's dead accurate about what people are like. It tells the truth. <laughs> There's a reason it's endured, even in this, our culture to this day, with people mocking it and rejecting it and, and, and discarding it. And, and uh, it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> Why? Because the stories and the teaching keep ringing true. They keep there's a tone, there's, a, there's, a, there's something there, there's a discovery you can make. And in this process, we find that Christ has words that make sense of life in the universe. Then what happens? We believe it. <laughs> and maybe everyone in this room is at a point of belief at some point, in some increment. And, and that belief is, is an acknowledgement. And I, but I want to I push it that a little bit because sometimes we stop right there, right? And then the, the, the journey and the cycle is somehow cut off or canceled or, or doesn't take to its full effect because we want to know him. And knowing implies, this is not just knowing data. This is, this is high Jesus. This is, this is intimacy. This is somebody saying, I know you the way you know me. And, and this idea of knowing in the Bible, especially in Hebrew, is full. You remember the old expression? Did you know her in a biblical sense? <laughs> These are jokes that 14-year-old evangelicals tell each other. I know, it's so racy. Uh, but, but what's the joke? Well, it's the knowing, knowing in the Hebrew sense, knowing has, it entails more than data. It entails relational connection and intimacy. And that's what we want. And do you see it? We're, I mean, aren't you, on this, aren't you on this journey? I hear Simon. He's te- Father. Well, he doesn't say Father Jesus. He's not talking to Father. Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Have you? Where, where, how does this journey describe you at this moment? How does it describe you in your process and where you are? I wonder. What I'm hoping to do then is that we'll t- we're going to learn how to live this journey just from these words of Jesus. I think, they think it's there. And uh, I put down the clicker, didn't I? Oh, I put, did I put it in my pocket? Yeah, I did. That's stupid. All right. Uh, this, and, and I think this is the text we want to go to. I love sort of 62. And this is what I do when I'm, par- when I'm preaching. I try to find the one part of the Bible I don't get. When I read this, I did not understand it. 62. Christ is in, in de- dealing with their rejection, grumbling, uh, misunderstanding, and but obviously uh, a, uh, an understandable misunderstanding since Christ is upping the ante with really strong wordage and verbiage. But here, 
this response, do you take offense to this? Obviously they do. They're all upset. Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Anybody? Any takers on this one? How many of you when you're reading that didn't even notice that? Didn't even notice that, that that little expression? What's going on here? What is Christ doing? I think Christ is doing something wonderful. And what he's doing is, he's saying, look, <laughs> it's, it's a sense of foil. Put it this way. It's, it's the drama of the foil. What I mean is, what's a foil do? A foil in a plot or a play highlights whatever's in the foreground. It highlights what the author wants to highlight. And what is Christ doing here? He's saying, look, I ascend. John has talked about ascending and descending in John 1 and John 3. No, no one has ascended into heaven. John, Jesus even talks about ascending after his resurrection. Ascending. Is why is this so important? Because in ascending, Christ sits enthroned. Ascension is his journey, his journey, of which our journey becomes captive Our journey becomes a follows. Our journey mimics his journey, right? And what's his journey? His journey is to a throne. Notice this. It's really kind of funny, the way Jesus thinks. I I, I know that sounds silly, but I love it. It's it's kind of, it's it's marvelous. But I I hope I can explain this well. Uh, Here's what he's saying. You're offended that I said gobble up my blood, aren't you? Yeah. You know what? You think it's weird that I, as a man, would tell you to drink my blood? You think it was really weird, and weirder still, if you saw me in glory. Like, okay, he's pushing them in a way that's really unique. He's, not, he's saying, you're not outraged enough. <laughs> you're, not, you're not upset enough. You think it's weird for a man to say, eat me and drink me. You haven't even grasped yet who I am. And my majesty, I am the king of kings. And eating me is more marvelous and wonderful and fantastic and amazing and remarkable and outrageous than you ever guessed. Praise him. Look, I'm going to tell you something. When I bump into Jesus' glory like that, and you're bumping into it right now as you're hearing about it, just praise him in your heart. I praise him. He's a remarkable, remarkable individual, a remarkable person. Yet he's more, more remarkable because his, his remarkable life rescues my rather unremarkable one. <laughs> it uh, gets better and better, but I stay on track, Chris. Ascending, ascending. Our spiritual life is a journey that flows from Christ's living majesty. In other words, the, 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 the meat, uh, in a sense, so what Christ is doing by saying this, by drawing your attention to his majesty enthroned, he's saying, look how much I have done. Look at who I really am. Look at how I'm making myself edible to this, to this man. And I just despised you. Why, why, do I, why would I despise you, Peter? Because wouldn't God despise all of us in our sin? But no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so he's telling you, he's telling you, so, so if we could start, if we're going to start our journey well, and if we're going to be on our journey well of searching and, and discovery and, and believing and knowing, we got to put him where he is. And he's enthroned. <laughs> he's in majesty and he's yours. 
And if that wonder, that's the wonder you need to seek for. Because once that wonder begins to capture your imagination, your faith takes off, can take off on that. Because knowledge and belief in Christ is waiting, waiting, waiting for you as you, in, as you see him ascending as the ascended son. Praise him. Ah, I love this. I love how Jesus just drops off his grandeur. <laughs> you, know, you know what I love about this? I know this is off subject. I'm going to tell you anyway. I remember my grandmother was the antique dealer, and she had a glass display down at, uh, uh, what's the name of that? Longwood Gardens. Longwood Gardens in Philadelphia. Longwood Gardens was made by the DuPonts. You ever heard of the DuPont family? One of the wealthiest families in American history. Well, one of the DuPonts came to her shop one time. She only found out afterwards because one of the wealthiest women in the world, when she showed up at an antique show, showed up in an old beat-up Jeep with gardening clothes on, her fingernails dirty, with, a, with, with overalls. And my grandmother said, you would have never known who she was until somebody else said, do you know who just was in your booth? That was a DuPont. You know, it's the whole, it's the whole story about old money. Old money? <laughs> it's the, cry, cry, Jesus is old money. Does that make sense? And then he's like, he wears his majesty like it's just there for him. It's his. He's always had it. We're the ones who don't see it. <laughs> We're the ones who bump into it in our unbelief. We're the ones who don't acknowledge it. We're the ones whose lack of worship and lack of passion is such an indictment. Why aren't you caught up in wonder? Where, where's your wonder? Are you, ah. Oh. Well, pray, we pray you, Father, you give us more wonder. Okay. This is the risen, look at, if you can't have wonder, then enjoy the wonder of Rembrandt. For look at him. Look at how he, Christ becomes the epicenter of light. Through him we come to the spirit. God is down and look, his light reflects on everybody else and all eyes are on him, but where are his eyes? His eyes are on his father. Rembrandt gets it. Rembrandt gets it. We gaze upon Christ and Christ takes us to his glory. Rembrandt gets it. I want you to get it. <laughs> There's something called chiaroscuro. And that's the way that an artist uses light. Nobody did it better than Rembrandt. And the light draws your eye in. He's almost glowing, radiant. And we're in darkness and clouds. And he is ascending. <laughs> that's amazing. That's a vision that was born out of living faith. <laughs> And Rembrandt was a believer. So what are we going to do here? Well, our spiritual life is not only that, but it's a journey powered by the Holy Spirit in us. I've been saying this week in and week out, and, I, and I've hopefully been kind of reiterating it and going back to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he is the Spirit of truth whom the Word could not receive, because he neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Oh. All right. You have come to First Presbyterian Church. We are the frozen chosen, right? <laughs> frozen chosen. I remember making a joke with a, an earnest, rather revivalist Baptist preacher many, many years ago as a child. Uh, I was at a Bible, Bible camp for Baptists. And he was convinced because I was a Presbyterian, I could not be a Christian. And actually, that's not a bad guess. But as it was, I was. And, uh, but I was always, always 
a smart mouth. And I finally said to him one day, well, thank you for, I, I wanted to tell you, I think that in the Bible it says Presbyterians will be the first people in heaven. I can remember, I remember the hand going up, the stern look of rage, and I'm like, I squeak out, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Uh, that's a passage of scripture. That's from the Bible. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Therefore, Presbyterians will get there first. Get it? You know, can I tell you how, what a, you know who the uh, theologian of the Holy Spirit is? In all of Christian history, he was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit, John Calvin. Let me tell you something. There is a blight in the Reformed tradition. You are entered into it, and it's called Presbyterianism. It's called Reformed. It could be Dutch Reformed. It could be Scottish Reformed. It doesn't matter. And in its, in its intelligence and its analysis of Scripture, and it has some of the most robust intellectual tradition in the world today. It does, on par with Jesuits. But what's the problem? What can be the problem? No Holy Spirit. Remember, we need to believe, believe to knowledge. There's a progress to our faith and a deepening and a ripening and a burdening and over, like a, like a filling up. We need the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Reformed tradition, because we believe in the sovereign God who, who comes and chooses and elects and grabs and loves people, then we must believe, we, we should be, the true charismatics. We should be. Because we believe Nothing happens apart from the Spirit. That's the sovereign God I present to you. That's the sovereign. Christ is so, the flesh is no help at all. You, you guys, you, I'm trying to make the point. He's trying to bring them home to the journey. He's trying to bring them home to a knowledge of him so they would forsake their own flesh, forsake their own search. And they'd find him. And, he, and, he, and he's enticing them. Stop interpreting things the way you're inter You do not understand the world or the universe or me, he's saying. You don't understand the structure of reality. Did you imagine I'm a cannibal preacher? He's saying, you haven't even grasped who I am and how I will sit forever enthroned and how I am king. You've missed it all. What do you need for all that? You need the spirit. Um, at a moment very depressed moment in my life, an old preacher told me, I said, I'm not praying anymore. And he said, okay, I understand that. He said, I went through cycles like that in early ministry. You get very discouraged and very, very intense and you don't know what you're doing. He said, just pray this then. Give me the Holy Spirit today. And I prayed nothing else for almost a year. It was amazing. I'm, all I'm encouraging you to do, and I'm like, all, more than what I am encouraging you, directing and exhorting you to do, is to begin to search and, and seek out, I'm sorry, oh gosh, to begin to search and seek out from Christ, from God himself, the spirit. Why, 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 why? Okay, because, it, 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 because no one comes unless it's what? Granted. Our spiritual life is a journey that only begins with a prayer grant. You just wrote, you're writing a grant, set. You write grants all the time, don't you? So do you, Mel? Who else is writing grants around here? Anybody else have a hand at writing grants? My son's doing it for, the, for his department, uh, for his grad school. Yeah. For those of you for new, you also predestined. I don't want to get caught up in talking about all that. 
I don't even need, I don't even understand predestination. Do you? If you think you do, you're a knucklehead, you're a bigger knucklehead than I thought. I don't understand any of this stuff. But what am I hoping for? What do I know? Jesus gives out grants. And they're called new life. <laughs> he gives out grants like total forgiveness. He gives out grants like his perfect holiness in you. He, and he's just giving it away. Have you applied for a grant? Are you a grant writer? Are you a grant writer? Are you a grant prayer? Because if you're not, and we were out in the street there. Let me tell you this, we were on the street praying. And Peter and Corey and I had discovered a couple months ago, as we were praying weekly, that we were being led by the Spirit to pray for people as they're walking by. Because we realized we have, decided, we have begun to think that people are outside God's reach, and we're not praying for real people as they're walking around. So we started praying like that. It was just about that time that things got really, really bad in my life personally. Should I be surprised? <laughs> no. No. And I think there's a granting for San Francisco that it is our business to seek. Yes. Yes. What are you praying for? Every one of you I've prayed for that I know. I haven't been here. I've been Every one of you I've prayed for that I know. And I've prayed that it would be granted. <laughs> you know what I want you to do? I want you to start praying and take it for granted. Come on, come on, that was funny. Come on, that was good. Take it for granted. What? I'm a dad, it's a dad joke. But seriously, if you catch the, it's, I want you to remember it. That's why I'm making the joke. You should take it for granted. How do you pray? Seriously, how do you pray? How does Christ teach you to pray, Charlotte? Take it for granted. Praise him. <laughs> so finally then, as I'm thinking about this, I've been talking about our journey. We thought our journey begins and God's granting it. It's animated by the Holy Spirit. That's where our energy comes from. And it begins. It begins in, in, in knowing his substitution, his love. Ah, good stuff, right? Why is Jesus? Jesus is in so much conflict in this text, though that it seemed to me that there was no way to escape that a part of this is a story of how our journey is through many obstacles. It's interesting, Christ says this later in John 16, and my mom always taught this, and I think she was dead on in her wisdom. Jesus, when he says this, it's kind of a promise, isn't it? <laughs> on several accounts. <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble. Sounds like a promise to me. Sounds like an accurate prediction. In the Proverbs, it, it reads, man is born to trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. You ever seen sparks go down? <laughs> they go up. <laughs> sure as that happens. Man is born to trouble. What's as sure as man's trouble? What's even more sure? That he has conquered the world. Well, let's walk through his... his how did, what did he conquer? What was his battle? Well, right here, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I'm right out the gate. What's one of the obstacles in your journey? I don't understand the Bible. I hear it all the time. I don't get it. It's boring. It's stupid. I don't get it. I, amen. 
<laughs> no, seriously. There are, there's a lot of our scriptures which are inaccessible to us immediately because we haven't grown to the maturity to be able to hear or see or understand what they're about. And I'm saying that as somebody who is still not mature enough to understand some of the Bible. And I'm your pastor. <laughs> it's the reality. That's all, I'm just a man. And so, and the idea this is a hard saying, it's right out the gate. There's a lot of hard stuff in it. And we need, in our journey, I need to be prepared for that. And, and I'm being invited to what? Looking at his ascension. Inviting the Holy Spirit and prayer. What's the next one? Grumbling. So the first one is just simply the difficulty of understanding the Bible and God's word at times. What's the second obstacle? Grumbling. What's the next thing you're going to hit? Criticism. Anybody love criticism? Anybody feel like they have a gift of criticism? I know some of you do because I know the way you talk to me. So I'm teasing. I don't have anybody in mind. Uh, but look at this, grumbling. And the idea, so one of the obstacles we have and one of the hard things we're going to do and the troubles we're going to have is the difficulty of understanding truth. Let's turn to the Holy Spirit and turn to Christ. Critics. Critics demoralize and disorient, don't they? You hear a criticism. I remember somebody taking a joke with me that they could hear two of us. That was me. No, somebody else was telling me a story, and I remember this story. But I remember one Sunday in particular, I must have had 50 to 100 people tell me how great the sermon was. I, I don't know why I remember that so clearly, because the next person said, after all those people come through, looked me in the eye and said, you know, um, this couple, we're leaving the church because we just don't like your preaching, and we don't understand it and can't follow it. How, do you think I remembered anything positive after that? <laughs> what do you do when a criticism... It, nothing else exists for you but a criti critic, right? Look at... G no, no. Hear, hear me, hear me, hear me. A vision of the ascension. What does it start to do? It starts to push out the critic. It starts to give you a vision of Christ again. Because Christ has not criticized you. <laughs> he said, this is mine. You're mine. I love you. Ah. <sighs> How about next? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, uh, some of us are dealing with friends who have left the faith. Or we have, we've had some people leave our church because of, of relocation and, and because of some of the things that have happened. I'm not trying to get on the nose here. This is not about anybody in particular, but I want you to say that there is a decrease or sometimes it's hard. Sometimes things shrink. Doesn't mean not God's not with you. But how do you do when things, or what do you do when you're downsizing? <laughs> what do you do when you have to downsize? Or what do you have to do when you have to say words? And some of this, it's a part of the trials. And you need a vision of Jesus on the throne, trust me, when everybody starts leaving you. I, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I'd even go further than this. And I was thinking about, uh, so, somebody was asking for prayer last week about a friend of theirs. And I, sometimes when people say they're not Christians anymore, I am very glad. Because I suspect what has happened is they gave up a fake Christianity and a fake version of God. Almost every time I've talked to somebody like that, they'll tell me what they didn't like and how they, they're angry at Christianity and they've left the faith. And as a little bit of question, probing a little bit, well, why? Inevitably, inevitably, they have an image of God that's nothing like the Bible. Nothing at all like the scripture. What have they given up? They've given up the false God that they believed in. And I'm thankful for that because that means now the gospel might be able to get in because a fake gospel is on its way out. Betrayal. That's another thing you'll experience. You guys are, many of you are very young. It's only when you get older, 
that you really start realizing you have a, you have a track record of people that have betrayed you. And I see betrayed, let you down, abandoned you, spoke ill of you, <sighs> told somebody a secret. Anybody had that happen yet? Have somebody betray a secret yet? That is one of the most painful. First time that really happens, it's like, oh my goodness, betrayal. Well, I, you know, and I, this kind of, I, I, I kind of pause over this for one moment. Do you, did I choose you, the 12, y'all, I guess? And yet one of you, y'all, is the devil. I ask myself, why does Jesus put this in there? Why does he say this? What, what does it serve? I think there's something else there. I, th- I think there's a, a principle, a Judas principle. You need to be wise. You're not allowed to worship this community. You know why? One of you may have a devil. We're not allowed to worship the church. <laughs> the church is not our God. Where every church you ever go to, guess what? Verse 70, if that is true about Christ's disciples, why isn't it true about the local community church or First Press? Honestly, am I better than Jesus? Am I smarter? Am I better looking? Can I have a better leader? No, it's ridiculous. Christ is telling you this is part of his plan. And I think there's another part of this plan too. And I hope you hear it because it's going to help you in your journey and looking at Jesus. Because everybody, we learn later, every time he said this, one time he says at the table, do you remember what everybody says? Is he talking about me? He's not talking about me, is he? Surely not I, Lord. I think one of the reasons Christ puts this in there and says this again and again is to give our hearts pause to keep running to Christ, lest we ourselves be who? The traitor. You know, it's funny, the, 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 the scriptures season our lives with this kind of truth because this is what the real world's like, right? This is, this is what reality's like. There are devils out there, and you haven't met one yet, you're in for a surprise. But Jesus is really arming you, isn't he? Don't be surprised. <laughs> Don't be surprised. I am in control. And, and, and I think this, this kind of, it causes us, it should rock us a little bit on our heels and then rock us forward for a new vision of Christ on the throne, on the throne and the Holy Spirit living in us. Amen. And there's the next one. Fear not, even, for not even his brothers believed in him. Huh. <laughs> Look, friends and family think you're a knucklehead. <laughs> this is a part of everybody's journey, being misunderstood by family. Amen? I mean, somewhere along, somebody just looks at you and goes, really? You fell for that? You don't believe that, do you? I think that's stupid. Are you, really? Come on. God helps those who help themselves. You're going to a Presbyterian church? Boy. We could, oh, there's so much here hatred of the world and the muttering hatred of the world, one with their hatred of the world. It's funny, he's talking to his brothers here and he's saying the world can't hate you. And what he's really saying to his brothers, they can't hear it. But what he's saying to them and they can't see it, what he's saying to them is a, quite a judgment. Because when he says the world cannot hate you, he's saying you're not in me. Kind of a sad thing. Some of his brothers we know did become believers. But the world cannot hate you. He's talking about right when he's talking to him at this time. Because later on he's going to say, the world must hate you if you're in me, though. Which follows because he says, it, it hates me. And if you're in Jesus, you will earn, unmerited and unlooked for, 
the easy hatred of the world for no particular reason whatsoever. And if this hasn't happened to you yet, this is a big surprise when it happens. I, you'll have you sometime in your faith in some public arena or some other where somebody will respond to something you have said about knowing Christ or being in Christ or being a part of his people and you will get a, an unreasoning hatred backwards. And you're like, what? That's, that's disproportionate. And that's what happens. It's not in proportion to what you said or did. It's disproportionate. What do they have again? But because somehow in some way we are now have become antithetical to the world. How? Well, let me help you in your journey. Jesus wants to help us in our journey here, right? He's helping us understand our journey together. And what has happened is, is that, is that, um, is that uh, we are now, it, it just goes back to what he started with. He's like, look, I am outrageous. <laughs> I am the king of kings come to be devoured by people. You want to be a part of me? You're going to be just as outrageous to this world. You're going to be just as weird and disconnected from this world and everything it wants and seeks. It's seeking all these worthless idols and it's going to look at you and it's going to be mad that you're not seeking with it and you're not as lost as it is. And it's going to be mad you have some place to go other than where it's going and its pleasures and its self-destruction, its desire for success and wealth and power. And you'll be sitting there looking at you going, you're, you're a chump. You're one of those. Are you one of those? And you have to eat it. And you have to stand there and take it on the chin. Why? This is a part of the journey. And it's proof positive, actually, by the way, that you're one of his. For the world will treat you the way it treated him. And they killed him. When I say the world, I'm talking about Christians, too, who aren't truly regenerate. I'm talking about, every, I'm talking about the entire mass of human society that is not in love with Jesus. That's it. Kind of coming full circle then. I, I guess I want you to get hungry. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, in just a, just a couple chapters, Christ is going to preach. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, I'm sorry. Different book. I was, in, I was preaching from Matthew last month. Sorry. I just got my head locked in there. No, he says it in Matthew. <laughs> he says... Um, Oh, what does he say? Where, 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 where did my brain just go? What was I quoting? Oh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And what I mean is, and what I think, when I hope that you will get from this, pray for hunger. I mean, just pray for hunger. I'm serious. Look, a lot of you are disposed to a lot of different things in a lot of places you want to go, and a lot of you don't know how to start towards spiritual maturity or knowing God. You feel confused about the Bible. All these obstacles look terrifying. You're like, Christ ascended. Gosh, Christ, I have a hard time believing he was ever here to begin with. And you're, like, and you're just, oh, Chris, come on, help me. I don't know what to do here. I want to speak peace to your soul. <laughs> Let's cry out for hunger. Because hunger has a way of sorting everything out in the kingdom. Let's pray for a hunger his presence, a hunger for holiness in our hearts, a hunger to see people give their lives, a hunger that people would know, a hunger that we would change, a hunger that we would have joy, a hunger that, and let's pray, seek, let's seek out hunger. You find somebody who's hungry, 
love on that person because Jesus is preparing them for the gospel. Do you, I'm hungry, hunger. Do you know what I look for in leaders? Hunger. Because one thing about hunger means they want Jesus and they want to chase him because you can do anything with hunger. A hunger for God. And I, I guess in, that's, in the end, that's the setup, right? That's the thing that's going to tip this all over and let the glory run into the streets is when this generation, faced with its trumps and its fake news and its pundits and its folly and its walls, doesn't matter. All that, faced with all the, with Pelosi, all the nonsense, all this stuff. And we're all, don't know what's going to happen next or what's going to happen after that. Ah. Uh, Mm. It, says, it says something in the Bible. I'm going to end with this. They, 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 they sacrificed uh, the lamb. This is what it says in Genesis. It says, God smelled it. He said, it's good. Isn't that a weird? Isn't that weird? It's called anthropomorphism, where God appears like a man so that you could connect with him. The only problem is in the incarnation, God became a man, and he, he gained an olfactory sense just like mine. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm just hoping that something's going to happen with Jesus that we smell the roast of lamb on a fire. Like we smell like the roast of, a, of an ox, of steak. That we and Jesus by his spirit and his appearing here and his power and his answer to our prayers for all these people we're pleading for. What will happen? It won't be just God is going, man, oh my please. I'm hoping that people in Castro go, what was that? I'm hungry. I pray they'll miss, that, that they'll, they'll say that when they meet Peter. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would, you would, uh, you would give us a hunger that, that is ravenous. That we would, gobble, we would want to just gobble you up and be filled up. Yes, Father. Um, uh, there's some of us who've never really, really eaten of Jesus yet in our hearts. So, Father, give us a little hors d'oeuvre today. Give us a little taste. Give us a, or let that hunger get more acute. Or let it get more real. And we pray, Father. We pray for ourselves. We pray for each other. We pray for our kids. We pray for our parents. We pray for our city, our neighbors, everything. Let this whole world be alive with a hunger for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to enter into a ritual and rite by which we are all saying as we come up and grab it, we are ravenous for Jesus. And if we're not ravenous now, we're asking that we will be. Because on the night he was, oh wait, I'm trying to learn this new liturgy thing we're doing. Uh, this is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Praise him. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And he broke it, saying, this is my body. Remember that? This is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after dinner, he took a cup of wine, saying, this is my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of... Take and drink. Unless. Remember? Unless. You can't have his life unless you have this. Oh, amen and amen. You know, I invite you, if you are a sinner and a ruined man, hungry for new change and righteousness because you believe in Jesus, get to this table. But let me warn you, if you think you're a good person, if you came this morning because you're a good religious person, you are unworthy of this table. 
Well, you must be full. What are you, you're not hungry for Jesus if you're a good woman or a good man. So I, I, I'm sorry to bar the way to anybody who doesn't say how much they need Jesus. That's the way it is. It's that unless is still there. But let me have a final group. Some of you are skeptics. And some of you have heard me talk about all this God and all these marvelous ways. And you're like, gee, Chris, if I could believe that, I'd be excited. <laughs> you know what? You can. Just wait on it. I'm praying for you. And uh, your life will be miserable until you do. I'm going to make that prediction right now. <laughs> Wasn't that terrible for me to do that? That's terrible. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to say the Apostles' Creed, which are the the, the, the space-time events that we believe uh, happened and we trust in for ourselves in space and time. <laughs> and I ask you to con as consent to those to come to the table. So we're going to read the Apostles' Creed as, as, as Christians have done for 2,000 years. Then, or 1,970 years, and then, or 1,950, uh, and then we're going to come forward, get bread and wine, take it back to our plates, back to our seats, I'm sorry, as we sing. Yeah, that's it, All right? Okay. Sorry, I'm a little bit scatterbrained. Uh, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Come.